Hi, this is Tamson Granger. And this is Dan Abuhoff. The Tamson and Dan read the paper on Sunday, October 13th, right. 2019. That's right. And this is, uh, you have the dynamic duo somewhat bedraggled because today was the covered bridge ride, the famous and dreaded Tinicum covered bridge ride, which yes. is 55 miles. 55 well, miles. You can do all these different mileages. But we do 55. We did 55. And uh, kicking and screaming, yes. you dragged me into this. Yes, that's true. Because I, I thought 44 last week was plenty. It's amazing how you can ride a bicycle kicking and oh screaming at the same time. It takes something out of you. Even, But that said, it was a beautiful day, so you couldn't pass it up. What are you going to do? It was beautiful. But and, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a heck of a ride. It's between four, it's like five hours on the bicycle. Yeah. It's closer to six. All right. It's, uh, uh, and um, it's a lot, a lot of people. Right. A ton of so that's a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, there's a really dynamic quality to it. I've noticed over the years many more women are riding now. You know, that is true. I did notice that. Yeah. Almost every group that went by us, uh, there would be at least one woman, maybe more. Right. And uh, On a real bicycle. When right. we started out, we'd yes. see Very few women. a couple of women. Right. So that was kind of fun. And there were other, there were interesting ethnic groups there. Yeah. Um, it was, uh, you know, it it was right. But this fantastic, is fantastic. But to be clear, we had to ride the bikes. Yeah, right. But to be clear too, when we say we see we're seeing other people, it's not there. They are in a lark. These are riders. So they're on three five thousand dollar bicycles. They're riding pretty strong. They're serious riders. Okay. It's it's not like all shapes and sizes. Right. It, Every that's once true in a while, too. You see somebody who it looks like they're too heavy to it, be on a bicycle. Yeah, you would think they were not physically fit at all, and they zoom by. That's right. And they were not on e-bikes. Right. But we, I, I, we don't know if they finished. They may have passed out 15 miles in. <laughs> I think uh, they finished. There were a couple people, frankly, who uh, we passed, they passed, and then we never saw them again, and I don't think they finished. But that, it's not important. The point is <laughs> that uh, it's full disclosure. You're getting a somewhat compromised physically uh, pair here in terms of Tamsin and Dan, but we're, we're going to do it anyway. And uh, it was a beautiful day, and it's it's worth doing. You know, this ride is worth doing. Maybe not the 15 times we've done it, but uh, it's worth doing. Actually, we've done it more than 15 times. Is that true? Yeah. Oh, my. All right. We've been doing it a long, long time. All right. So the big uh, sports story and political story combined in one this week has been uh, the NBA and China. I'm so mystified by this. I, I, yeah, you don't. Well, why you're can't not really mystified. Why people just apologize and go home? Well, they kind of did, but here it's here's why it's really weird. Why doesn't it work? I'm not saying it won't. Okay. Okay, but it's still weird. So Daryl Morey, the general manager of uh, the Houston basketball team, the Houston Rockets, a guy who's admired in the league as a forward-thinking individual. Puts out a tweet which says, like, go Hong Kong. Hong Kong folks have the right idea. China's being oppressive. All right? Uh, you know, a lot of people feel that way. Uh, as soon as he lets that go, it's a huge firestorm. China is incredibly ticked off. The league is going, uh, what was that? And Maury withdraws the tweet. Mm-hmm. And everybody's scrambling. So why? Why go so nuts? And the answer is this. Number one. Unless I, I know you do know, is that the, the Chinese people have a super authoritarian government. They don't go for that kind of thing. They don't brook dissension. They don't want to deal with people who, uh, in business, who say mean things about them politically. And the NBA is doing a lot of business with China and wants to do more. And they're the biggest market on the come for the NBA. There's a lot of market now. They sell a lot of material there. So 
China immediately makes some remarks like, oh, wait, I don't know if we want to do business with the NBA. And, and Adam, Adam Silver is going like, he has to sort of walk a tightrope and, and to say, well, what's your question? What are we going to say? President Trump says anything he wants about China. President's different. That's different. China has to deal with President Trump. They don't have to deal with the NBA. Okay? So, uh, Silver uh, has to do a fine line. On the one hand, he has to say, uh, you know, apologies, China. We still, you guys are the greatest, whatever. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, we have, we let people speak their minds in the NBA, but that was regrettable. And you're saying to yourself, this can never work because these players are very outspoken in the NBA. They're going to get all kinds of remarks about China and China is, is going to shut down the relationship with the NBA. It, it's, it's a disaster. How could this possibly work? And you know what happens next? What? Nothing. Nothing. Nothing means nobody in the NBA follows up. Nobody supports Maury. No one follows. No players say, yeah, Hong Kong. Come on, China. Wake up. That the kind of thing that the NBA player would do in any other political realm, zero. Silence. And they even go to Steve Kerr. Steve Kerr, very outspoken, coach of the Golden State, very politically astute. And they say, what do you think? I'm sure you have something to say. Very anti-Trump. He's out of, you know, this is tricky. And he doesn't say anything. And so what's going on? And I can't figure it out. Mm-hmm. And the Wall Street Journal opened my eyes. Not the New York Times. The Wall Street Journal opened my eyes. And what the Wall Street Journal explained is this. Yeah, you would have thought, perhaps, that the NBA would have trouble disciplining its own players because the NBA is business interests that the players wouldn't respect. But it turns out the business interests are the business interests of the NBA players themselves. They deal directly with China. Mm-hmm. LeBron James was in China. When this happened, doing business, mm-hmm. okay? He sells an enormous amount of uh, equipment that he endorses in China. James Horden, the star of that Houston team, with Daryl Moore as the GM, was it has made two trips to China a year, sells merchandise. After Moore's thing came out, he made a statement apologizing. This is a player apologizing for the general manager. Say, oh, he's kind of a hothead. You know, I'm a player. I'm 26 years old. I'm more relaxed. China, we still love you. He literally says, we still love you. The quote is this. It, it's, it's unbelievable. We apologize. We love China. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, it's like Rory. It's like Freaky Friday. Mm-hmm. But the fact of the matter is, the players have their own economic relationships. And what's going on with Kerr, when he keeps his mouth shut, he's he can't speak out. Because he's got his own player, Steph Curry, who sells the second most amount of jerseys with Under Armour in China. Mm. So he, he's going to get in trouble with his own player. He doesn't care about the league. So it's a real Rory Russell thing where the players have their own direct business interests with China. And for that reason, they are going to keep their mouth shut. And Silver, when he says, you know, we're going to walk a fine line, he doesn't have to do anything because the players know where the money is. And they're just going to toe the line with China. So it's totally weird. Okay. Okay. I, I, I see you're moved by that. I find it unbelievable, but uh, it works. But in any event, Eli Manning, you were clamoring for some more insight into Eli Manning's personality. I was not. And I came up with an I article for Sports Illustrated. It's I an interesting like, article. I, well, you handed me the world's longest article. It is the world's longest, yes. From Sports Illustrated, yes. I guess. And um, uh, all about Eli. Yes. Because we worry about Eli. Yes. We look at him and we feel we can uh, imagine his emotions um, about being benched. Etc. and what kind of person he is. And it turns out... Turns out he's not at all any of those things. Right. We we can't. We don't have a clue. Right. 
He apparently is his own man. Yes. He apparently, you know, has a life. He has his uh, own outside his, of what we see on the flat screen. He's in his own orbit. Yes. That, that, you put it in a good way, outside of the flat screen. It turns out, as revealed in this article, uh, he's perhaps not as put off by all this as you might think, right? Uh, no, apparently not. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's, uh, it's an article worth, uh, looking up, uh, because it is kind of goes into depth about what kind of person he is growing up. First of all, when he was born, um, they were worried about him because he only weighed nine pounds. All right. Peyton and Cooper came out of the womb at 12 pounds plus. Yeah. Which is just astonishing. Yeah. To me. Yeah. Um, They're big children. What, what was Olivia eating? Yeah. Uh, that's what I want to know. Yes. When she was pregnant. Um, but anyway, uh, so, um, lots of funny stories about him. Stories about, uh, he loves karaoke. Mm. Um, he's, you know, uh, uh, very sociable compared to, I mean, that, isn't that funny that on the commercials and everything, Peyton looks like the fun guy, right. the sociable guy. And growing up, he was Mr. Football. He didn't do anything but football. Right. Couldn't think about anything And Eli but is the easy, yeah. g- goofy, affable party guy. Throwing parties, I mean, when, getting in trouble. When you say ka- karaoke, he has his own karaoke machine. Well, he had it since, well, he had one at a yeah. very... Yeah. Young age. Right. That's what, like, his main thing. Yeah, it's okay. crazy. All right. No, a lot of people have karaoke No, no, not quarterbacks. Because, not the quarterbacks. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. But, uh, so they have a lot of people speak out on his behalf, and uh, they say his teammates are just amazed when people are concerned that he's not uh, um, tough or doesn't care as much as he should, and, uh, you know, they have statements of people saying, you have no idea, he works his butt off. Right. Um, well, he cares, you know, the funny thing is, according to his article, he cares, he does want to win, but he's not, he has this total sense of perspective. He's just going to come in and do his best, he loves his teammates, he wants to be with his teammates, and he wants to do what he can to help me win. If they win, they win, if they don't, they don't. But he knows he put in the effort, which so is an unbelievable mature. He wouldn't mind being like second string quarterback. Right. As long as he's on the team. He's helping out. He loves being on the team. For the next 10 years right. or something. So if the team says, we think you should take a step yeah. back, he says, oh, that's what the team wants. They that's also say wants. that he was unfairly saddled with the role of scapegoat. Yeah. Well, that's, that, I think that's true. And that a lot of, uh, there was a lot of dysfunction in yeah. the giant family. Yeah. Uh, I mean, basically saying that McAdoo was not a good coach. Yeah. And uh, that the, you know, it was manipulated to make it look like Eli wasn't a good player. Well, and, and you're seeing it now because when Daniel Jones came in, everybody said, oh my God, he's turned the team around. Except now he's lost the last few games. And uh, it's not about So Eli. it's not just about it's the about quarterback. Team. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, it was a nice article told about uh, his wife, Abby, his three girls, all his friends come over after games. Not allowed to talk about the game. Right. Just talk about family and stuff. Every and Sunday evening. He does these crazy imitations of, of Saturday Night Live. And they're in, in Summit, New Jersey. Everybody drives up. Uh, they order some uh, pasta. They order some lasagna. And they chill out. Yeah. So he's okay. Yeah. For those of you who are worried yeah. about Eli, he's absolutely okay. In more right. ways than one. He seems like... Uh, an interesting thought, Paul. Yeah, they did. You know, the, the debate that always goes on in, in talk radio and has been going on for years is, is Eli a Hall of Fame quarterback? Will he be in the Hall of Fame? Will he be in the Hall of Fame? Yeah. And this article aptly says, you know something, that's an interesting debate, but you know who doesn't care about that? Eli. 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 <laughs> so, 
you know, it all takes all kinds, and it's it's interesting to have a guy who's that mature. And uh, well, that... one funny family story: um, uh, when uh, his mom Olivia was pregnant with him, yeah, uh, she and Archie were worried because it, he would be born right during NFL playoffs. Yeah. Or something. They didn't have to worry and, about that. And uh, they didn't have to worry about it. The team went 1 in 15 yeah. <laughs> that year, so it all worked. Yeah, out. So Archie played for the Saints. But, they were uh, terrible, man. Okay, so let's talk about a guy, though, who is weird in uh, in kind of a negative way, I think at least, is Lance Armstrong. So you thought you heard the last There's a Lance... roller coaster guy. There's a guy America was worshiping, right. including our buddy Tom Walsh. Worshiping. I, I can't tell you how many times is the real deal he's telling the truth. And I'm saying, come on, he must have used steroids. Everybody says he used steroids. Tom said, no way. He said unequivocally he didn't use steroids. I'm sure they didn't use steroids. And it turns out he did use steroids. Right. And, uh, and So it, he fell from grace. Fell from grace? Yeah. He Here's, here's what the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency determined after investigating Lance Armstrong. He, quote, ran the most sophisticated professionalized and successful doping program that sport has ever seen. End of quote. Armstrong disputes that his doping was unprecedented. Dunn doesn't dispute anything else. Unprecedented, he said, I don't know about that. <laughs> and of course, he had he was the most successful bicycle racer of all time until then. He won the Tour de France seven times. So what did he have to do? He was stripped of all seven titles. He was stripped of all other titles. Right. He was knocked off the pedestal. It was like, you know, it was like the, the statute of, uh, you know, uh, Hussein or Stalin getting knocked down and being dragged into the river or something like that. Yeah. And he was supposed to disappear, except he doesn't. And that's the weird thing. So, but it's okay because it, the doping scheme wasn't that sophisticated. <laughs> well, it was sophisticated. It just was not pre- unprecedented. Okay. okay. So, but, but, so I'm reading, um, I read uh, Cycling Plus, which is a great bicycle magazine. From the UK. Yes, from the UK. You have to, if you want a bicycle magazine, UK is the way to go. So uh, they have an article in there, and I'm saying, what's this? And the article is about by a guy named John Whitney, and saying, this is totally weird. Lance Armstrong is back. Lance Armstrong, the most disgraced guy in the world, uh, and now money's flowing into his coffers. He has a podcast called The Move, and The Move is... One of those uh, podcasts about the Tour de France. Your mom probably listens to it. <laughs> and according to Whitney, he says, it's a terrible podcast. This guy says, is a UK bicycling guy. Uh, it's inaccurate about a lot of things, and it celebrates Armstrong. But the fact of the matter is, it was, depending on who's measuring, between the first and the third most listened to sports podcast of any sport during the Tour de France. More than the other much better podcast. And this guy says, what's going on? This guy is an awful, doper, disgraced guy. Well... There's an article in Bloomberg, uh, Bloomberg Business Week, explaining what went on. And what went on is that Lance just didn't go away. And he tried different forays, and he eventually came up with this podcast. And he does it with George Hincapie, who we know is has this operation in uh, South Carolina. Yeah, he's a big shot bike rider yeah. uh, out of South Carolina. Right, and he has a hotel called the Domestique. He was a Domestique for Lance Armstrong, which are the guys who hold the lead. Um, but he also testified against Lance Armstrong. And Lance said, ah, bygones be bygones. And he, he gets Hincapi with him, and they're doing this show, and people tune in. And what clued him in, somebody sent him a market survey that was done about who's, you know, what are the most, what, what do you like best about cycling? And whatever they said about cycling, they said. But one of the questions was, 
who's your favorite cyclist? And it could have been Greg LeMond. It could have been Chris Froome, who's, who won the last five Tour de France. And overwhelmingly, they said, Lance Armstrong. So he's showing this to everybody. He says, I've still got it. And he's back. And unapologetically, he makes more than a million dollars from the podcast. He's got plans going forward. Uh, and not only that, but in the broad broadcast of the Tour de France this year, which is broadcast on NBC, an NBC affiliate, NBCSN or something like that, guess who they chose to do the, the broadcast? Lance Armstrong. <laughs> and it's like he's like a bank robber. He's giving tours of the bank or something like that. <laughs> anyway, it just shows that you know, that's the way America is. You know, memory is limited, uh, or we just got a tremendous uh, comfort level with high crime. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it tells you, but uh, Lance is back. So, your own explanation. I can't explain it. If you can explain it, then you'll let me know. I don't know. Maybe he's just interesting. Uh, I think he's more notorious. Well, I, I think Americans are willing to forgive and forget. Uh, maybe. And you know what this guy Whitney that, says? I said that with my tongue in cheek. Well, you know what this guy Whitney says, the English guy? So, he's a step removed because he's English. He says, you know what Lance is? He's charismatic, mm-hmm. which is another way of saying he doesn't care what anybody thinks about him at all. And his first few podcasts, he was tentative. He was vulnerable. They weren't interesting. Now he's telling people what to think, and people respond to that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There you go. Interesting. Yes, I thought so. So, what to think about uh, your health? Interesting article in the Wall Street Journal those probiotics may actually be hurting your gut health. By Lorenzo Cohen, the new fashionable pills and foods meant to increase the variety of healthy bacteria in our bodies can ab- actually have the opposite effect. Probiotics? Everybody loves probiotics. Every, it's all about, well, the, the thing is the gut microbiome. Yeah. And that just refers to you know, the, uh, everything that's going on in your gut, everything that's living there, bacteria, parasites, uh, viruses. Um, and the more diverse it is, apparently the better it is for your health, your mental health. And even there are now studies saying for how your body deals with, uh, immunotherapies for various cancers, including melanoma. And, uh, so, Lorenzo Cohen, who's writing this article, uh, he's a doctor, actually, and he was um, diagnosed with advanced uh, melanoma. And so he was already a vegan with a high-fiber diet. He makes a point of uh, kind of trying to uh, lower his uh, glycemic uh, load he calls it. Just means trying to lower sugar, mm-hmm. the amount of sugars uh, in your system. And after six months on his, and, and he's taking the probiotic pills uh, as well. After six months on this regimen, yeah. uh, they test his microbiome and uh, diversity has plummeted. Meaning he, he hasn't solved his problem. Right. Mean, well, meaning that uh, he was doing this in order to enhance his body being able to respond to the immunotherapy right. for the cancer right. that he was experiencing. And so this was a So fail. what he does, and, and this coincides with a study saying the pills, the over-the-counter probiotic supplements, uh, actually don't do any good. In fact, they may harm but they, because they, they re- reduce the diversity. So that's surprising in some respects, but it's also consistent with the notion that we hear in a lot of contexts 
which is there are benefits to be gotten from certain foods with respect to certain chemical reactions, but the supplement that people develop in order to evoke the same never reactions works. never work. Never works. And this doesn't work Expensive either. urine. That's right. And uh, so he reduces, you know, his emphasis on these probiotic-rich foods. Uh, maybe he's drinking less uh, cider vinegar. I don't know. Um, and he goes back to the whole grains. And apparently the whole grains uh, really have an important role in this. So we should uh, be uh, doing that. Anyway, he, uh, he undoes some of what he was doing. And, uh, the, you know, they look at his microbiome and it, it is bouncing back. All right. So, well, there you have the it. The supplements. Don't yeah. waste your money. Yes. All right. Well, All the pills. Advice. Eat a healthy diet. Well, that's looking. Eat some, you know what he mentions? What? Buckwheat, which is kasha. Yes. Well, we love uh, kasha. We always knew kasha would cure everything. Well, I, we haven't had kasha for a long time. Think about okay, it. Okay, why don't you whip some up? You know, I used here. to make kasha. You know I used to make kasha by no, myself. No, I don't remember you oh, ever making yes, kasha. I, when I was living alone in Columbia, I used to make kasha in the hot place. For yourself? Yeah. I, that seems highly unlikely. Uh, God. I didn't have an egg to put in. I would eat it with just water. It was, it was tough doing. Uh, you know, I think it's, uh, I, you know, I don't think that's especially good for you. I think grains, you know, sort of in combination yeah. with other uh, well, that nutritional. I, I didn't have. Right. So, um, so you know, we haven't talked about the Joker movie. We're not going to talk about it now. Uh, a lot I will of say people... that my students who have been to see it love it. Really? Yeah. And these, say... these are people in their 20s. These are people in their 20s. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they're not knuckleheads. Okay. Yeah. The reviews, I'm, look, I don't have a position on it. I haven't seen a positive review. I've seen some variety of negative reviews. I think the Times was disposed not to like it, no matter what was in it. I think the Journal looked at it more clearly and said that there were a lot of things very interesting. They love the cinematography. They love the music. Mm -hmm. uh, but they said there's not enough there there, which mm -hmm. I think, what uh, I read, that's probably a fair review. Uh, but, uh, one thing that people are talking about, um, is, you know, the portrayal by Joaquin Phoenix and the key. They especially love him. They love him. And, and people, they say, they people say, like him. Yeah. And, and, and if you want to like the movie, I think if you see it as a character study, it maybe it satisfies at that level. But the key to playing the Joker, according to many people, is the Joker laugh. The Joker laugh. He has this maniacal laugh. Mm -hmm. And so the Times wrote an article about, What's the best Joker laugh? And what do they have to compare? Well, you know that there was the Heath Ledger uh, version of the Joker. There was Jack Nicholson. Uh, there were a couple of television shows like Gotham, which had someone playing the Joker. They dig as far as they can. Uh, and they're trying, and, and they say, check all media for the Joker laugh. And uh, they decide the best Joker laugh, which I think is the critical key, was not Joaquin Phoenix's, but was not Jack Nicholson's, was not Heath Ledger's. It was from uh, Batman the Animated Series, uh -huh. right? And uh, the voice of the Joker in Batman the Animated Series was the best Joker laugh. And here's the most amazing thing about that. And this is something I noticed once when I was just watching this with Granger when he was a kid, I think. And I just looked at the credits. I said, could that be? The Joker was voiced on that series by Mark Hamill. Really? And they interviewed him. They say, how did they, first of all, they say it's a great laugh. It's mm -hmm. maniacal. It takes a lot of effort to do it. It's very unique. It's great acting. Mm -hmm. And they say, how did you do it? And he said, well, uh, I looked at him. I, the image is all teeth. I tried to just laugh with my teeth. I did this. But the truth is, I drew on another part I played. 
say Luke Skywalker. No. He said, um, he played on the stage, and this is something I've forgotten, uh, Mozart and Amadeus. Oh. Right? Yeah. He says, that's the Mozart laugh. Really? That's where it comes from. Really? Okay? That's where it comes from. And I'm saying, saying, wow. So the Joker laugh, the great Joker laugh comes from uh, Luke Skywalker via uh, Amadeus Mozart. I mean, uh, that's insane, really. And then I was thinking even more about that, you know. I'm trying to remember how that worked out with him. Well, the truth is, he had gotten the part on the London stage. They changed cast several times. when It started out in London. And he auditioned for the movie. He almost got the movie part. The movie was a big success in my yeah. form. Uh, and the part went to... Uh, <laughs> he didn't get the part in the movie. The reason he didn't get the part in the audition was because Milo's foreman says, I want all knowns. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. I want all unknowns. Mm-hmm. So he said to him, I'm not going to cast you because everyone's going to say, I know who that is. That's Luke Skywalker. Yeah. And instead he gave it to Tom Hulse. Yeah. Okay? Tom Hulse, not completely unknown. Tom Hulse was known here in this country for Animal House. He played Pinto. He played the, the youngest, goofiest, most naive kid in Animal House. And then he goes from there to to Amadeus. He's in the movie Amadeus. And interestingly, uh, what is he doing now? He became a Broadway producer. So you, you know what he's one of the producers of now? What? Um, Ain't Too Proud. Really? Yeah. So uh, it's just kind of interesting. Uh, so Mark Hamill. Catching up with Mark Hamill. Yes, there you go. Uh, it comes from Mozart. Um, so there was an interesting, uh, letter following up on, uh, what we discussed previously, which is how to enjoy baseball by yes. knitting. By knitting. Yes, by knitting. Yeah. That's why I don't enjoy baseball. I don't knit. Apparently. Take it up. Take it up. Um, anyway, there was a, a nice letter to the editor, um, from Barbara Gold in Philadelphia. And she says, I loved this story a very long time ago. 1963, to be exact, a guy I had just started to date took me to a Phillies-Dodgers doubleheader. The first game went to 13 innings. I knit an entire sweater that night. (laughs) P.S. We have been married 54 years. How do you like that? Go, Barbara. (laughs) That's a good story. Well, I was telling you about another story, and I thought you had an interesting reaction to it. You know, the, the Wall Street Journal um, runs uh, sort of a page uh, every every week, or at least every time they do the magazine. I think it's every week. And uh, they pick a, a word or a concept or a theme, and they have six celebrities comment on it. And it, it's, it's, uh, it's sometimes mildly interesting, often not. But it was nostalgia this time. And Michael Lewis was one of the six people. And Michael Lewis, for whatever reason, he chose to concentrate on baseball. He says, when I think of nostalgia, I think and of... who's Michael Lewis? Michael Lewis wrote The Blind Side. He wrote Moneyball. Oh, okay. he, he, he's, he's a writer. Um, and he... Um, but he doesn't just write sports books. Uh, he, he wrote uh, Liars Club business books, too. But uh, he, um, he said, that's what baseball is. Baseball is totally nostalgia. It's, it's about... Men who uh, are recalling their relationship with their fathers when they're watching baseball. That's the only thing that keeps baseball going, in Michael Lewis's view. Uh, otherwise, it's pretty dull stuff, as opposed to basketball. Basketball is exciting. It's the current sport. It's going to take over. It doesn't rely on nostalgia. 
Uh, so baseball is kind of doomed. That was his comment. And I remember my reaction to you was, is that really true? Because I certainly remember uh, watching basketball with my father and watching other sports with my father. But why would it be that baseball is so nostalgia-oriented? And uh, But I think you pushed back. You kind of supported Lewis, saying you do see a big element of that. Yeah. Baseball. Well, I just, uh, I just feel that, uh, you know, none of our kids were big baseball players. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not about them playing baseball. So the extent they watch foot baseball at all yeah. is kind of to connect to you. And you, of course, uh, for you, was a great kind of highway of communication between you and your father. You love to watch uh, right. the Mets together, and you spent zillions of hours doing that. Zillions might be zillions. an exaggeration. I sort of doubt that, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. Um, so, you know... It just reminds me of, like, uh, people collecting LPs, Yeah. you know, and people were always so sure that uh, various uh, records would be tremendously valuable the older they got. And yeah. the truth is, once you lose the people who remember about them, yeah. once you lose the listeners of Rudy Valley, Rudy Valley uh, yeah, but, yeah, records but, are not but I think that thing. I think once you, when you get further and further away from baseball being a part of people's lives, in ways besides just on the TV. But, but here's what I, I gave that some more thought. I, I thought it was interesting what you said. But, you know, there's something, there's still, there's something about baseball that's different from other sports that I think causes the connection in a way that the other sports don't cause connection and cause it to live on. And that's this. Baseball is about individual form, performance more than other sports. And it's about success, but more than anything, it's about failure. And how people deal with failure. And I've heard people write up that baseball is about morality as much as anything else. People, what's right, what's wrong, who deserves what. And you end up identifying with uh, the plight of various players because you see your favorite team, your various various players who are your favorites fail and fail again. And without going too deeply into this, I was just reminded of this just this week. Okay, So Washington was playing the Dodgers. It was the deciding game. And the question is who's going to go on in, in the NCLS? Dodgers being heavy favorites, and the Dodgers, uh, the best pitcher of the last of this generation over the past ten years, let's say, is Clayton Kershaw, who's been the best regular season pitcher, and now he he's getting uh, a little bit older, so I can't say he's number one right now. But over the last ten years, he really has, and he's still a star, and he gets makes a million dollars, million dollars, he makes thirty million dollars a year, um, and he's the face of the Dodgers. But he's, for whatever reason, he hasn't done well in the postseason. He hasn't done well in the, in the playoffs in the World Series. And it clearly, it, it, it's a drag on his reputation. And it clearly gnaws at him. So that, sure enough, the Dodgers have a situation in the deciding game, which is the fifth game. They're beating the Washington Nationals 3-1. to one. They just need six outs to win the game. And they've had a magnificent pitching performance by a rookie. And they bring in, as they sometimes do, in the start of the eighth inning, um, a starting pitcher, Clayton Kershaw. It's like shooting a, a squirrel with an elephant gun. He's going to pitch the eighth inning. Mm-hmm. And maybe more. He, he got one out in the seventh. But he's going to pitch the eighth inning for us. And uh, then we'll knit this up. And that's it. Three to one. We got him. And Kershaw comes in. And on the second pitch, he gives a home run. And now it's three two. And on the very next pitch, he gives up another home run. And now it's three three. And the lead is gone. And it goes into extra innings. And they lose, and the series is lost. And Kershaw is the GOAT again. And here's what's interesting. They have a post-game press conference, okay? 
And Kershaw, obviously disfraught, sits down. And before anyone asks him a question, he says, look, I know a lot of you guys are going to say that whatever success I've had in the regular season, I'm a failure in the postseason. And again and again in September, I failed. And you know what? You're right. You're absolutely right. And you know what? I'm going to come out next spring and going to give it another shot. Any questions? <laughs> and it's a stunning, stunning. And he's, he's completely distraught, taking full responsibility. Mm. And, I mean, it's almost biblical. I mean, you know, how, how that affects you quite apart from the excitement of a moment in a baseball game. And baseball has that dimension. Or let me put it another way. If you ever see that in an NBA press conference, give me a call. Uh, okay, you know where to reach me. That's not going to happen. So there's something about baseball. Well, we'll just leave it at that. The Yankees play the Astros tonight, and uh, we'll see how that goes. You have to learn to accept failure if you're a baseball fan, unless you're a Yankee fan. That's the way that works. So those fans are yeah, not... And it works for life, too. Yeah. All right, so on that note, with a life lesson from Dan and baseball, Yes. Uh, we'll be... Uh, Moving on and soaking our tired muscles. That's right. So this is Tamsin Green. And Dan Apuhop. Let Tamsin and Dan read the papers. See you next week.